Welcome back. This is the Prevention is the New Cure podcast, all things health and NHS with a political twist. I'm Steve Bryan. I'm the MP for Winchester. I'm currently the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a frontline general practitioner in the Midlands. I'm chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. That's a few of my hats, but it's enough for now. Thank you very much, Dame. Anyway, um, brilliant response to last week's pod. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all of your feedback. Keep it coming. Podcast at stevebryan.com. Find us on socials and suggest items that we might talk about in the pod surgery. Today, we are going to talk about primary care and we've got a diabetes special. But before that, now, as a Dame, Helen, I presume Mm. you were in Westminster Cathedral on the weekend. Do you know, Steve, I was devastated that my pretty invitation must have got lost in the pairs because I was at home watching the coronation like everybody else. Mm. Um, but I'm glad you raised it because the coronation whilst I don't know about you, I mean, there wasn't an awful lot of conventional health prevention wrapped up into the whole coronation celebrations, but I was really pleased to see the environment featured in quite a big way. I don't know if you got to see the concert. Um, on... I loved the concert. I thought the it's concert was great. great. Other than other than Mark Owen from Take That needing a haircut, I thought <laughs> they. Uh, and boy, to see, I just you know when you just want to, you just want to cut it. Um, I thought, yeah, I thought they were fantastic. Take That haven't been on stage since 2019, and uh, I thought they were great. But then the Prince... concert was great, and all the environmental stuff. I mean, do you, you know Prince Charles when he, you know, he he spoke about the environment and single-use plastics in particular yeah. in 1970? So it's like yeah. four years before I was born. And, you know, everyone said he was wacky and fair play to him. You know, he used his position. Yes, he was born into power and privilege and and all of that. But it's how you use it that counts, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, but one of my main banters, which in fact I have shared with him when he was merely Prince Charles, was that what's good for the planet is almost invariably good for our health, too. There are virtually nothing there are only tiny number of things that aren't good for both and I think it's good for us to remember so when we're talking about health prevention it's really good to tie this stuff in with what's good for our planet as well so and yeah concert was amazing I just love a drone show that's probably not good for the planet but they are so uplifting and they do bring us all together I can't fly my son's drone uh, in in the park without sending it off into a tree or a or a fence how they do that I mean it must all be it must all be completely absolutely but you know so I wasn't invited either but uh, NFI but I watched it on the television of course it was raining outside in Hampshire so it was it wasn't too bad sitting inside watching it with the kids um, great view my my 15 year old daughter who I like to as you know reproduce quotes for the podcast a classic quote because obviously it did go on a while why don't they just stick the crown on his head and be done with it Uh, my my husband's quote man gets new hat full stop (sighs) honestly off to the tower um so i and i and i met um our sovereign lord last week he came to westminster for a reception in westminster hall with mps and members of the house of lords and he worked the room beautifully as he does and the queen came along a bit later on so i met her as well and uh there is a classic photo helen uh of that somebody took when i when i'm met him second time I met him and we were just talking about his visit to Winchester and I said I was the Winchester MP and he said oh yes yes I was in Winchester um 
last year. And I said, yep, you're unveiling the statue to Likarishya, who's a very famous Jewish uh, resident of Winchester many years ago. And uh, he said he really enjoyed it. And he's lovely. I really, really, I, I really liked chatting with him. Anyway, Pretty Patel was standing near me during this photo and her face in the photo it's a caption competition in the making so if anybody <laughs> finds this photo on on my social media on on facebook steve Bryan mp you will see this photo and uh, your suggestions welcome please she's probably saying prevention is the new cure oh clearly follow um, their pod but but let's make the suggestions clean and repeatable please just before we move on to the more pressing matters of the day, we had a street party where I live. And yeah. in fact, the street party moved onto our drive just to be safe and not to have to close the road. Do you know, there wasn't much terribly healthy food there. A few things appeared, but what it did bring was a load of great community spirit because there were people there who weren't uh, terribly supportive of the royal family and some who were super supportive. But that sort of didn't matter. There was a really good feeling about getting the community together. It sort of brings in, you know, my interest and my love for social prescribing and how we do stuff better to make people feel good about themselves, make people feel worthwhile. And boosting community spirit is such an amazing thing to do if you can possibly do it. So made new well, friends. Yeah, I mean, of course, there wasn't great healthy food at ours. I mean, there was a hog roast. But, you know, look at the, you know, I chatted to one resident who no longer lives in the village. He lives in a, in a nursing home and he's in his ooh, mid to late 80s. But what that does day did for his mental health you know yeah. just being yeah. back among his villagers uh, that he'd grown up with and so yeah, there was a mental health element to the day brilliant anyway we're going to talk about um gp access uh it's been a big day so we're recording this on tuesday um, tuesday evening in westminster it's been a big day here we the government have today unveiled their primary care recovery plan um so making it easier for patients to contact their gp and end that 8 a.m rush uh new technology for general practitioners so that they upgrading their telephone system so you don't get an engaged tone um making a promise that people won't have to ring back to the next day to get the appointment for the next day and uh, and a big big investment in community pharmacy to sort of spread the load and take the load off general practice we had a statement in the house from the secretary of state earlier and i think it's been very well received uh, by some general practitioners i've done a bit of media on the subject but Dr. Helen, general practitioner Helen, is yeah. it, is it, does it add up to some of its parts? Well, look, if we, if we, you know, the first thing is this is just a plan about access to general practice, the transactional bit about getting in to see your GP or another healthcare professional. This is not a plan to fix a whole of general practice. And so, so long as you look through it, look at it through that lens about the transactional bits, it does an awful lot of great stuff. So nobody's going to argue that putting money into improving pharmacy services and expanding things there is good, empowering patients with a whole heap of new tools. Um, people can use the NHS app better, improving GP telephony. All those things are really good. And I'm not hearing anyone being negative about that. There are some, um, a little bit of confusion about how much is new money, how much is repurposed old money, how much is taking money from other bits in the contract, but that'll all come out in the wash. I think what we do need to be really honest about, I think the Royal College GP sort of said that this is not a silver bullet or this is nobody's got a magic wand here. You're not going to suddenly magic up a load more GPs by doing a plan about improving access and simplifying and improving routes into general practice. Um, and if we think, if we go back, Steve, to why this plan came about at all, it's because public satisfaction with access to general practice has plummeted. So Public satisfaction with general practice has plummeted as an overall score. But when you unpick it, the dissatisfaction is with the access. Once you get 
through the door or down the phone line and actually speak to a GP or a nurse or one other healthcare professional, satisfaction remains incredibly high. Yeah, so quality of care is good. It's just access. Absolutely. So great stuff in here, um, but it's only part of the problem that's attempting to be solved yet, which is fine. But what I don't want is for people to think that they're going to phone their GP surgery uh, tomorrow and things are miraculously going to be better. I, I always say, look, I mean, I think we need to be positive. That this, that's the spirit of Coronation Weekend, right? Glass half full. Primary care, as you know, I'm inherently a positive person, Helen. But, but prim- <laughs> primary care is, for me, it's a whole, it's a whole section of the healthcare landscape. Yeah. It's not just GPs. Too so right. If, if people expect, given the demand, the rising demand that there is, given the pressures on secondary care, especially emergency departments, for it to all come through GP land, then you'll never have enough GPs. You'll never be able to get through on the, on the phone, no matter how good the telephone system. So a, you've got to spread the spread the load, and that's why the community pharmacy access is important. And we can talk about what it is that they're they're proposing with that. And b. What are we going to say? You got to prevent ill health in the first place. Absolutely, and that reduces Absolutely. GP appointments. Too right. Um, can we just pick up on the pharmacy side of this, Steve? Yeah. Because I think there's some really interesting stuff come out here. I mean, over the week, last weekend, we saw headlines that our community pharmacy services are under huge pressure. They're struggling to have enough staff. Certainly, we know that some staff have moved from being in community pharmacies into general practices, which has had a a bizarre impact on some community pharmacies and some are finding it financially difficult to cope and some have closed. But there's some really quite exciting developments coming in the whole world of uh, pharmacy, community pharmacy. I was was one of the bits of feedback we had since the last podcast, uh, somebody called Cyrus Hodivala got in touch with me and he was extolling the virtues of robotics in community pharmacy. Now, we've had robots oh, yeah, yeah. in hospital pharmacies for quite some time, you know, picking the medicines, packing the medicines. But the rapid expansion that's happening in community pharmacies, obviously, there's a big upfront expense. But if you've got a robot which can work 24-7, unlike a human, to pick the medicines and accurately pack the medicines, and they can also do things like making up those packs with the sort of daily bundles of medicines for every patient that could be one of the solutions so there's quite a lot of exciting tech in this space as well that could be and you know know, as you know i used to be the pharmacy minister i used to bang on about that pharmacy is part of primary care pre-primary care but you know it's primary care but i think you know am i right am i is it fair helen to say that in gp land there may have been traditionally a little bit of reticence that that pharmacists are not on a par with the clinicians in the GP surgery down the road, but there's been a recognition that they are highly trained clinicians and actually GPs can't do it all, don't need to do it all. And if they're going to focus on the patients that really need to see them, they need to bring in that wider family and that that attitude has changed now. Do you think that's fair? Look, you know, I'm, I'm so young, Steve, I can't possibly comment about what the distant past was. But I think you're right about attitudes changing right across the board about a range of healthcare professionals that work with uh, GPs and their teams. And pharmacists certainly fall into that category. We've employed several pharmacists within our own practice, and they are just amazing, dynamic, valuable members of the team. And we've got a great relationship with our community pharmacists. So um, I think they're absolutely part of the solution. 
nowadays any new pharmacist qualifying i think it is as of 2025 will also be able to dis- uh, prescribe medicines and not just dispense them and there are a large number of pharmacists who have upskilled in that regard over the last few years so there's upskilling going on as well yeah so, so that's where we should probably end this bit is that that that's that's the that's the difference here so yeah. i think there's about 645 million pounds over two years to expand community pharmacy services and you know it, it I, I went to a pharmacist uh, last summer with uh, with an earache if you've got an outer ear infection, they'll prescri- they'll give you something over the counter OTC. Yep. If you've got an inner ear infection, they can't. So so they can then so they can now uh, do much more prescribing based on the pharmacy first pilots, which, which I started when I was in office actually back in twenty eighteen. So mm. they, they're rolling that out across England. They're funding it. So you know with ear infections, sore throat, UTIs, yep. widening that access to contraceptive um, oral contraception pills, and that is a that is a good innovation but of course what that needs is the investment because pharmacists can't just do it on goodwill they've done that for too long and they're going to close and they are closing yeah. so my question in the house today was how quickly can we get this investment out there and the other thing is i'm just interested in your view on this finally if you um if you have read access to the patient record in a pharmacy, mm. which you do at the moment, you don't have write access, do you? Correct. And write-in access is important, right? Because you need to know that your patient's been given a prescription somewhere else. Absolutely essential. It has to be two-way. You've got to write as well as read. Also, with this great expansion of more pharmacists being encouraged to help with the diagnosis and management of hypertension, uh, actually, patients who are on antihypertensive medication do need to have blood test monitoring. So they need to have their kidney function monitored regularly. Um, and actually, that's not something that pharmacies currently have access to. So, you know, you've got to have good communication with the GP practices or at least access to phlebotomy services. So there's a lot still to be worked out. But you're right, glass half full. This is, these are all great steps in the right direction. Um, just want to keep people's expectations real about what difference it's going to make on well, the yeah, time and- scale. And the, the infamous uh, long-term workforce plan oh, is still to come. Do you mean the, fa- the fabled? The fabled what? workforce plan is still to come. Look, we'll, what we'll do is we'll pop up on the podcast social media the links to the delivery plan for recovering access to primary care, Fab. which people can read. And then we'll also pop up on there this report from the, the Academy uh, that you yes, lead, please. which has come out today in conjunction with this. Thank you for mentioning that, because, yes, there's a whole heap of sort of over 50 vignettes of examples of brilliant work that's going on around the country. In fact, around the UK, not just England, um, of great work that's happening across the primary secondary care interface to try and improve the flow of patients, smooth the way. At the end of the day, this is all about making patients' lives better and about making the system work more effectively. Brilliant. As long as the uh, the famous 70s doorbell can be featured in any online access to GPs, then I'm happy. Right. Let's take a break and then we'll introduce our guest. Welcome back. Prevention is the new cure. This is our little podcast. I'm Steve Brine, and this is my partner, Dame Helen Stokes Lampard. Hi, Helen. Hi. Hi, Steve. We have a guest uh, on the pod today because we are talking diabetes. We're talking type 2 diabetes in particular, and we have a good friend of yours and mine, Chris Askew. Chris, who I met when he ran Breakthrough Breast Cancer, which merged with some other charities to become Breast Cancer Now. He now leads Diabetes UK. Uh, More than 5 million people in the UK. 
are now living with diabetes, Helen. Uh, there's yeah. an alarming rise in people developing type two at a younger age. So that'd be under 40. So, you know, even younger than me. Uh, and, you know, it, so that's rising and that's worrying. So, you know, we know type two has got a disproportionate impact on areas of high deprivation and in ethnic minority communities. Um, and maybe we think we know a lot about diabetes. I'm sure you do, but our guest knows an awful lot more. Welcome to the Prevention's New Cure podcast, Chris Askew. Huge welcome, Chris. Glad to have Thanks, you here. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Helen. Uh, good to be here. And thank you very much for putting the focus on to diabetes. Well, look, as you know, Chris, um, the select committee that I'm so fortunate to chair is doing this big inquiry into prevention. And you've given evidence to it um, recently and some of the work that we're doing. We are so focused on how the health service can be sustainable, how that can lead the health service to be better, but people to lead their best lives and their better lives. And, you know, some conditions, uh, God willing, you know, then they're, they're, they're not always preventable. Type 2 diabetes, my understanding is that it is a preventable condition. And actually, it's one that you could turn around. Am I right? You are right for many cases, Steve. And it may be this is a, a good time just to sort of lay down the definition. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition in which your body's not producing insulin at all. Uh, currently, it can't be prevented, although there are some very interesting immunotherapies coming along which offer the promise of potentially delaying its onset. Uh, and about 10% of all of the people, 8% of all of the people who've got diabetes have got type 1 diabetes. Type 2 um, is a condition in which you're either not making enough insulin or the insulin you are producing isn't being taken up by your body uh, properly. It represents about 90% of the cases. Uh, and it's the fast rising numbers in type two that are really driving that figure of 5 million. That was a figure we, we released a couple of weeks ago and it accounts for 4.3 million people that have had a, a diagnosis confirmed of, of any type of diabetes, but another 830,000 that we believe are living with uh, diabetes, but, but currently they're not aware of it. And that's a real challenge because Diabetes is is an incredibly serious condition, and if it is not managed well um, through self-management and support, it can lead to really alarming complications. But to come back to your question, is it is it preventable? Um, so uh, not every case of type 2 diabetes is associated with living with overweight or obesity, but that is the single biggest risk factor uh, for developing the condition. Then, as you say, uh, there are other factors that can affect it, including, of course, where you live, uh, ethnicity, uh, family history. So, for example, people of African-Caribbean, Black African or South Asian descent are two to four times more likely to develop type two uh, than a white person. And as so you why also is that? Said, why is that, Chris? Well, so there's genetic disposition at play here. And this is why um, in these discussions about what drives these numbers in type two, if we end up on the horn of a very simple view, which is that this is just about living uh, with overweight or, or, or worse than that, that this is a simple case of the choices that people make, we, we hugely under we hugely undervalue and underestimate the impact of this. There are complex genetics at play. Those genetics may come about as a result of ethnicity, but equally our genetics affect the way in which we interact with our environment epigenetics play a large part uh, we don't all face the same choices in the same way uh, so we've really got to understand the complexity that drives this it's only really by understanding that that we we can really begin to put together yeah you know viable prevention strategies what do you reckon helen look 
Chris, as always, makes huge sense and explains very nicely the complexity here. So there's a really unhelpful social narrative about people bring diabetes on themselves. In the same way, there's an unhelpful narrative about uh, many other health conditions. And we need to take away a lot of that stigma. Um, of course, where obesity is a major part in people's uh, predisposition and their worsening of condition, absolutely, we need to throw everything at helping people. Um, but but actually, we need to be able to facilitate honest, supportive, constructive conversations with people and not 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 create this into a you're fat, you got diabetes sorted out, which is sometimes I do hear. And, you know, as a GP, that is so spectacularly unhelpful. Um, most of the people who are in my consulting room, people with newly diagnosed diabetes are often very frightened. They've they've seen and heard a lot of things. Some of them are very embarrassed. I mean, come on, this is something we have to work with as Chris is, and, and as you've outlined, Steve, the numbers are enormous. This is something we all know or are going to know people who have diabetes and we all need to understand it better. In the years since I qualified as a GP, the treatments and the options and the understanding around diabetes have changed beyond recognition. You know, when I trained first, we had insulin for the very severe patients and we had metformin and glycoside. Um, if diet control had failed with you with your type 2 diabetes. Now we have a plethora of brilliant drugs. We have a great understanding of what needs to be done. And there's a huge amount of research going on. And I'm sure Chris can fill us in on more of that. Chris, on the, is there, there's an there's economics here, of course, isn't there as well? Is that I'm I'm always told, I've repeated this, so let's hope I'm right, that the, the NHS in England spends about £10 billion a year on type 2 diabetes. Is that is that a figure you recognise? Yeah, definitely is. And, and the bulk of that money is spent on those complications. So complications is a is a complicated word. Compli but when we talk about complications, we mean other health conditions that can accrue as a result of your diabetes. So, uh, and they're really sizable and they're really significant. So I'm going to give you some figures. These are complications arising as a result of diabetes. And these are per week, these figures. So in this country, we have 184 amputations a week, 770 strokes, 590 heart attacks, 2,300 cases of heart failure a week as a, as a result of, of, of living with, with uh, one type or another of, of diabetes. And, and that you know, can accrue. That's not necessarily the case for everybody by any means, but that can accrue. So it's the human impact of that is immense. The economic impact of that falls with the NHS. And that 10% figure, you're absolutely right, and is, is largely spent on treating complications arising from one type or another. Okay, so just, just just reverse reverse back a bit there a minute, right? Did you you said amputations from diabetes? Now, you know, I've heard this before, obviously, when I was when I was doing the public health job in government, and um, people might be surprised that that can be uh, an impact of diabetes. How how does that? How does that end up happening? Do you yeah, want me to it, take that one, Chris? You take that one. Absolutely. Because you're <laughs> like that one, way doctor. better than I can, Helen. Over to you. <laughs> So one of the complications of diabetes is that it affects the nerve endings. If you're, ner if you're not feeling, so we call what peripheral neuropathy. So you, the, the, the fingers, the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes, you start to lose sensation. And this is a gradual thing. People don't realize it's happening. And then you're at risk of damaging and injuring these places, particularly because remember fingernails are growing all the time. So there's always risk of infections getting in. If this area is not looked after well, once you've got infection in, it can get deep and people have no sensation that there is infection developing which leads to destruction which can lead to gangrene which can lead to the the need to have bits chopped off to save the rest of the limb that's a i'm trying to make it straightforward i did a vascular surgery host job when i was a, when i was junior doctor and 
we had one patient in who, when we walked on the ward, said to us as junior doctors, hi, I bet I'll be here when you leave in six months time. And he was right. And he gradually was losing more and more of his legs. Now, I hoped and prayed that in the decades since then, we would be seeing far, far fewer amputations. I think the numbers are less than they used to be, Chris, but it's still shocking that so much of this is still happening when... As I said, we have so many treatments and things that, that are available and so much better education and understanding, um, but we still have such a long way to go. Oh, my goodness. I said that, yeah, I mean, that, it is shocking, isn't it? Listen, I'm just going to press the, the doorbell. Listen, Chris. That can only mean one thing. That means that the pod surgery is open. And uh, we've a couple of questions that have come in because um, we, we advertised, obviously, we're going to talk to you, Chris. Um, this is from this is actually from somebody in Winchester. So this is from, from uh, one of my fans or not. Um, <laughs> basically, the question is, they asked not to be named, which is fair enough. The, the question is around sugar tax and yeah. obesity, uh, which is obviously policy that I, you know, full disclosure, I, I implemented when I was was in government. Um, isn't this all part of the nanny state telling people what to do, telling people how to live their lives? Chris, you can take that one. Yeah, gladly. And uh, I, I remember that moment. And Steve, you and I were working on that. And I remember being stood on the green opposite parliament, uh, alongside a spokesman from the soft drinks industry. And, and we both gave our side of the argument. And here we are, whatever it is, eight years, seven, eight years later, I think between 2015 and 2019, we uh, decreased the amount of sugar in our soft drinks by about 35%. And yet the sales of soft drinks overall have gone up. So we took out about 90 tons of sugar. Uh, and yet the sales of, of sugars have gone up. The, the issue is we, we're drinking healthier drinks, much less sugar in them. Uh, so and we did the same with salt. So these are really important uh, policy changes that affect the environment in which all of us make choices. And it comes back to that point I said before, we don't all approach the same choice with equal weight. If I have financial means available to me, I get to choose a totally different set of foods than somebody that might not. If you are living in an area of high deprivation, you will invariably be, be drawn towards the cheaper foods. Of course you will. And yet it's those cheaper foods that, that, are, that, are, that are less healthy for you. So I would say this isn't the nanny state. I think this is, I don't think it's the entirety of our strategy around preventing uh, cases of type 2 diabetes, but it is a really, really important element. And when we go out and poll people, I remember we polled people before the sugar drinks industry levy, uh, and it was incredibly popular with the general public. The general public are up for support. People are up for help. We want help to make the right decisions. We absolutely want support. Uh, and, and that's a very important part of the landscape. So if you said to me, you might say to me, Steve, but if you said to me, OK, look back, look, the number of cases of type 2 diabetes has been rising pretty much since uh, the 80s and 90s. What is the thing that is really driving it. One thing that it isn't is that we're not getting weaker in our willpower. So that is absolutely not the cause of it. The one thing that has changed and developed across that time is our access much more regularly, much more frequently outside of normal meal times, our access to cheap foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar. Uh, I was at a, a meeting interested at the NHS about prevention the other day, and I couldn't help but chuckle at the irony of looking at the bottom of my free newspaper for that day, which had a free donut giveaway at the bottom of it, a free donut giveaway no. from two supermarkets that should know better. No. So I'm not saying that we should stop eating donuts. We absolutely shouldn't. These foods have got a, a role in our lives and they're treat foods, but we should not be giving them away in a cost of living crisis free as a way of getting people into supermarkets. So yeah, yeah. there is a place Amen. for there is a place for policy and legislation. It's not the entirety. We need lots of education. We need support. But we do have to take an interest in, you know, 
foods that are being marketed to our children uh, before nine o'clock, etc. So there is a place, I think, for progressive progressive reforms uh, alongside lots of other interventions to help to yeah. to really stem the flow of, of these new cases of type 2 diabetes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I've got one to bring in now, Chris. Um, this one is um, a fairly assertive question from somebody, again, I won't mention their name, asking about access to bariatric surgery. I mean, look, Steve, you might have a comment on this as well. And certainly as a GP, I know I refer people for bariatric surgery often. Um, not many seem to come out the other end having had this surgery, but I seem to keep sending them off. Um, the, the question really is, have we got postcode lottery for bariatric surgery? What can we do to fix it? And how can we fix it fast? Yeah, really good question. And I mean, I think one thing that that we've seen, I think you mentioned it, Helen, that that we, and we're still sadly in too much in this space where in type 2 diabetes or in terms of weight management, actually, there has been no choice, very little choice, very little on offer, very little support. The area has been wrapped up in, in, in stigma uh, and stigmatizing attitudes and responses. And we've not had the sensible conversation, let alone delivered into healthcare, a full range of all the responses. Bariatric surgery absolutely has a part to play in that. Um, uh, you, you know, for, in, in the right cases with the right support. Alongside that, we have got new drugs that have arrived now, Wagovi, Azempic, um, uh, and we've also got weight management services. Um, the NHS uh, first launched its uh, NHS Diabetes Prevention Programme in 2016. Well over a million people have now been referred through that programme. Uh, and I think the figures are right here that between 2018 and 2019, that created a 7% reduction in the number of diagnoses of type 2 diabetes. We're also now trialling and expanding on the trial of remission. So my point is, I think we need a range of different treatments on offer. Uh, those need to be available to different people at different points uh, as, uh, as as we look at uh, our wider weight management strategies. Bariatric surgery absolutely has. I don't, I'm not really into the intricacies of this, Helen. I know in other countries, there's far more bariatric surgery that yeah. takes place. Um, I also know it's not a, a silver bullet for absolutely everybody. I heard a very good expression the other day at a conference where we were talking about different strategies and actions for weight management and it was that the patient never fails with a treatment around weight management the treatment often fails yeah. in other words lots of treatments may not work for one person one treatment might work what's worked for one person diabetes prevention program low calorie soups and shakes might work for some person some people but they may not work for the other equally with with bariatric surgery so i think uh, the yeah, main point okay. is we need a range we need a range of, of of different treatments on offer here so you preempted just one one more then dear Stephen helen I read that the NHS are going to help with soup and shake diets for people <laughs> with diabetes. Do the soup and shake and put the freshness back. Yay! Um, this was an announcement last month, Chris, right? NHS England um, ministers were talking about this. Did I, did I read this right? I'm presuming that Diabetes UK have been involved in this one. What's this all about? Soups and shakes. Yeah, you, that, absolutely, Steve. And I do know about this one very much because... Uh... Diabetes UK have been funding this for a number of years. We funded the original trial and we, we funded follow-up trials and we've just uh, funded the, the study that led to the five-year data. So soups and shakes, let me sort of open this one out a bit because it's it's I understand that the strap line, it's, but it's heavily sort of misreported. So the 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 trial that we, we funded, which had a control arm as well, but I should just say it's incredibly difficult to put together proper studies in, in weight loss which have got control yeah. arms but this did have a control arm so in other words I had a group of people that weren't getting any treatment I had a group of people that were getting the treatment and the treatment was uh, essentially a very low calorie um, powder supplements which uh, uh, give you all the nutrients you need 
but they take you down to about six, 700 calories a day. You're on that for about 10 to 12 weeks. And that leads to very rapid and very significant weight loss. After that, there's a, a, a return to eating, if I can call them normal foods. So we call that the normalization stage. What we typically found was that people didn't go back to eating anything like the quantities they were ate before. Lots of stories of people looking at their dinner plates and saying, how on earth did I fill that up with food before uh, I need to eat off a side plate? But there is a normalization because I think some people think this is a diet forever and it isn't. So it's a time limited period on the low calorie. Then you normalize and go back to normal foods. Uh, and the study showed that after five years, uh, a quarter of those people that were in remission of type two at two years were still in remission at five years of so the whole lot. That was about 10% of the original people that started out five years before uh, were actually in remission of type two diabetes. So what I mean by remission is they'd actually gone back across the diagnostic threshold uh, and they were living in remission of type two diabetes, always the chance that, that you could go back and get type two, but in remission of it. So you might say 10%, that's not a great outcome, but we learned this is a trial. And we learned huge amounts about the trial. We learned, for example, what it would be to get someone back onto weight loss if they had regained some of that weight. And we learned a lot about normalization. But what I am really pleased to say is that there was enough evidence in that first trial for this to be introduced within the NHS. So September 2020, the NHS uh, introduced the what we now call the Path to Remission trial. Four and a half thousand people took part in that. Um, and the offer is that really after 12 months of that, we were looking at an average maintained average weight loss of 11 kilograms. That is now being expanded. That was the news you were referring to, Steve. So this is, I think, by March 2024, this is going to be available to everybody that qualifies. There are some qualification characteristics, which I won't go into, but they're to do with age, how long you've actually had your diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, your BMI, your HbA1c, which is your blood sugar levels. But I think what this showed was we... We can put type 2 diabetes into remission. This isn't the only way you can do it. Uh, when I arrived at the charity and looked on the website, we were talking about type 2 diabetes as a lifelong chronic condition from which there is no returning. And that is not the case now. The evidence is there to say you can put your, your type 2 in remission. So this is another one of those choices that we were just talking about that needs to be available to people. Uh, yeah, they should no, go no. talk to their GP about this and get referred on Interesting. to the I mean, look, we're, we're all in the business of prevention, but I, you know, I did mention at the top about turning type two around and you remember tom watson who's a labor it was a labor yeah. mp and colleague of mine in the house yeah. you know he he it was quite a few years ago now uh pre-pandemic actually where he said how i lost seven stone and reversed my type two diabetes yeah. do you experience that helen in the surgery I, yeah i have it's been incredible and um, so i've seen people so well, the reason you know the bariatric surgery question i flagged it was because i've actually seen that have a huge impact on people helping them to get a start on their massive weight reduction which has then led on to to. But Tom was a very dramatic case and he he became evangelical about weight loss and how it can reverse your diabetes, but also the benefits of social prescribing, making people find all the good things that help them live a better life. And there's a whole heap of stuff here going right back to what Chris said near the start about there's an, there are an awful lot of social factors in people's lives that all feed into this. And I think prevention in its widest sense um, prevents a whole range of diseases, one of which is diabetes. But if we can I mean, the fantastic research that has just been discussed is so powerful, but will have far wider consequences than just on diabetes. And that is a good thing. Yeah, Chris, you're passionate about this. I, I can see that. You, know, you said it's a great charity and uh, it must be great you know, to, to make such a difference in, in people's lives and preventing ill health and all the things we've talked about that go along with that. 
Yes, yeah, Stephen, I think, you know, what we have with type two, it's, it is a bellwether of inequalities in society as well. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, the inequalities in type two paint precisely over other inequalities. If you're in the most deprived neighborhoods and you're under 18 years old, you've got six, you've got six times the greater chance of getting type two diabetes. So right? if we can yeah. get it, if we can get prevention right in diabetes, then we can really think quite widely across lots of other metabolic conditions and long-term conditions and think about prevention. But, but we have to get in front of this because uh, it's growing fastest now in the under 40s. So if you think about the value of investing in prevention for somebody that's under 40, that that really changes the the, the mathematics. And we, we just have to do a lot more to support people to live uh, without type 2 at lower risk of it uh, or potentially to put their type 2 in remission. But it's a, it's, it's a huge mission lots of exciting research going into it the area is changing and it needs to and if i can just make this final point we only get there when we get through the stigma we have to get yep. through that stigma we've, we've got to avoid the the easy sidestep and we've got to go through that stigma we've really got to start to understand why it is that a society that we are living heavier with with more weight uh, more of us living living with obesity uh, if we stop at stigma we, we make no progress Chris, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Um, you know, you I I think Chris is a he's a true believer, Helen, in he the is, prevention and we like, we uh, like agenda. Those. He's he's gonna end up with fellowship of the pod if he carries on <laughs> like this. Now there's a concept. There's <laughs> an idea. You've just invented it, haven't you? Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Um Thank you people both. can find out more obviously Diabetes UK online and all of your social media channels and um that including if you if you're worried about your risk of type two, take the know your risk score, which you'll find on our website. Absolutely. Steve. Great plug. Great. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So look, we, we trailed last time that we were going to talk diabetes at some point in the future coming up on the podcast. So we're going to be talking about body image and the recognized body image campaign that's uh, been put together by Dr. Luke Evans, who's an MP colleague of mine, uh, used to be on the health select committee, brilliant campaign talking about how body image can really impact the health of young people, young women, but also young men. We yeah. talk to him at some point, we're going to be talking HIV and AIDS actually with a, with a friend of mine. I chair the all party group here in parliament on that and how we, how we prevent that. And then I think, Helen, we're going to return to cancer, aren't we? We're going to talk to some of our friends in the cancer community um, following up on the special we did with Callie Palmer about cancer and how we, how we prevent that. Yeah, absolutely. So many topics for us to pick up on, Steve. Um, but also, we're always open to ideas and suggestions. If you've got something great you want us to talk about, we are very careful that we try not to promote individual companies. We try to be careful in the way we balance things. But we really want to get under the skin of both the politics and the health issues. So keep we the really ideas do. coming. So, so look, podcast at stevebryan.com. Find us on social media. Suggest your ideas for our discussions. Suggest your ideas for the pod surgery. And please make sure you follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen Listen to it on which would be much much appreciated we're incredibly grateful for your help and your support until next time helen been great seeing you chris thank you hugely once again Thanks, for your time chris. it's been great conversation See bye you all soon. till next time bye